lovely people and welcome to yet another episode of quintessentially queer So today we're taking a um, previous episode, if you may, to the next level. We're making things a little bit more practical since we will be talking about the power of psychosynthesis. And we have today with us the lovely Arin Amsler. Hey girl, how are you? Hello, hello. I could not be better. Yeah, it's amazing. So before we get into our interview... Let's spell things out a little bit, first of all. Okay, I hope you've already listened to my episode about Zora and paranoia and psychedelics in general. Not that this is like a conjoined conversation, but it's definitely like within the same topic. So, there's a multiple of situations in a person's life where one poses the question, how did I find myself here? What steps did I have to take to really face these circumstances around me as reality? Such an analogy brings to light a sense of realization that recognizes the multiple realities of the world and thus of the individual experience as basically variables which are either chosen or neglected. Heidegger, since this wouldn't be a quintessentially queer episode without mentioning my daddy, claims the paradigmatic position of science to be the metaphysical disposition in which life is lived through. And we're not going to get into his statements about technology. We all know what, how that went down. Through the verification of states, though, of affairs, in a way that can be contextualized and explained, what the new epoch of thought dictates is that systems of thought that are based solely on speculation and idealized reflection can be nothing more than refuted. In this respect, the doctrine of being, non-being, and thought, as the basis of philosophical and ontological thought, proposes the form of a complete cultural discourse. However, the current time of thought is open to a different regime of understanding. According to Alain Badieu, humanity has departed in the doctrine of truth following the dissolution of its relation to an idealized organic connection to knowledge. Things are not just factual. There are interplays of knowledge, embodiments, and experiences that shape and formulate the way things have become substantiated in what they actually are. 
The way we produce knowledge then works by using as a pivot the verification of variables around us. If these variables then dictate the process one way or another until we reach a point of balance, agreement or manifestation, then how can a multiple of people be led through a multiple of variables to one single moment or one common experience? How and why did the stars align in such a way where we were led to this? Imagine this. So, my weekend started off on Friday, where at my internship, we were celebrating the fact that the artist I'm collaborating with received an important subsidy. Champagne started the volition. Then, by the end of the day, tipsy and tired, I was in Rotterdam visiting a friend. At night, I got in a fight with a surprise surprise cis, white, straight man about social aspects and our responsibility to them because according to him, he's at the bottom of the oppression hierarchy. LOL. Then, through an array of vodka, meetings, dinner cancellations, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I suddenly found myself in The Hague as a stop on the way back to Amsterdam. Meeting new people in a new city allows adventure to have a shift in your own energy. Now, Energized, exhausted, and eager to return home the next day, I try to take the 3 o'clock train back to Amsterdam. I get on the wagon and for some reason, I thought that it'd be better to access the wagon that has a toilet from the outside rather than going through the train. Obviously, by the time I reach the door, it closes and I miss it. By the time I find somewhere to pee outside, since this is the Netherlands and a public free toilet is rarer than a kind fascist, I got the train to Amsterdam Central at 4.06. There's a sudden announcement that the train will stop at Harlem instead. For some reason, it stopped at Leiden. I missed the first train because I was carrying a bag of 7 kilos worth of trashy Britney Spears outfits. Long story. And with the second one, I get to Harlem. Obviously, all the trains to Amsterdam have been cancelled for the rest of the day. I think of people I know in Harlem to crush the night, but then I see the NS fluorescent yellow jacket. And I asked the person working what happened to the trains. Long story short, there might have been a bomb on the trucks. I leave, but then I turn back to ask him again if there will be any today, and then it happened. I see this diva wearing a purple crushed velvet long coat with fur, a huge hat, a scarf, and a full burgundy outfit pointing at me saying, uh, I guess I won't ask the same thing as him. Are you going to Amsterdam? And that was it. After a decision to share a ride together from Harlem to Slurdike Station, and a long conversation about spirituality, volais, queerness, tantra, social politics, and psychedelics, we realize that our commonalities have basically brought us together to make this moment manifest. According to J.D. Dewsbury, the ethics of truth exist in wording of three states of affairs. That of the simulacrum and of terror, where subjects come to believe that an event can come to fill the world. That of betrayal, where one fails to live up to the fidelity and commitment to an event, and that of disaster, where subjects come to identify with the truth of an event and absolute power taking over it, basically. Taking into consideration that I experienced all of the above on the way back from The Hague, that's exactly what we will be unpacking today. How can the multiplicity of experience and of a higher level of psyche be accessed in a way that is reachable? How can the sequence of energetic events and unconscious embodiments lead you to the level of realization? So, before we get into the interview, let's listen to one more song. The first song that we heard, by the way, is the song of the Golden Dragon by Esther Stone. And now we're going to get into the novels of Acquaintance by Rising Appalachia. Yes. 
Rising a Palakia with novels of acquaintance. Hello, Erin. Hello, hello. How are you, my love? I'm so good. Welcome to the studio. Thank Slim you. Radio official. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's introduce ourselves a little bit to the quintessentially queer audience. Where are you from originally? Since I don't really know you that well either, actually. We only met once, mm-hmm. so this is our getting together too for the first time. Mm-hmm. We went quantum the first time, so yes. let's bring it down to the real human essence. Yes. Uh, I'm from the middle of the United States, from All Chicago. Right. Oh, you're from Chicago. Chicago, Oh, yes. work. Oh, my God, I really want to visit Chicago. There's, oh. like, a blooming, like, queer scene right now yes. with drag and everything. It's yes. actually quite, like, like underground, I feel, still. You know? yes. Yeah? yes, I came up through a scene just like that, the underground rave scene in Chicago. That was my jam for so, so long. Nice. Oh, my God, that sounds beautiful. But you moved to Amsterdam how long ago? Almost two years now. Oh, it's been two years already. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've been here three, so kind of like, you know. How is it different, Chicago to Amsterdam, for you at this point? I mean, with Corona, I get that it's like a very specific thing, but, you know. Definitely. Well, I was via Amsterdam through L.A., so um, the similarities between L.A. and Amsterdam are a little bit more, but honestly, the United States to European culture is so vastly different. In a really beautiful way. It was actually quite a shock to have my Americanism reflected back at me. I mean, hey, imperialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Really, really, to be the center of the universe in a world that you are not the center of the universe, although you are, of course, always anyway um but then to have the 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 dutch directness right through what for me was a blossoming los angelino sense of like everything is big and beautiful and perfect and so overwhelming (laughs) and da 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 da. but the dutch would just like bring it down a little bit more (laughs) honestly really moving to amsterdam really helped me come to grips with my my humanity Really? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. There's such a, there's such a practicality about this culture that you really get the opportunity to engage with what is right here, what is real right now. Nothing big or fancy or anything about it, which is the culture that I came from, the United yeah. States. Like the bigger, the better. Yeah. And then, of, <laughs> and then of course, Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the home of Hollywood. Mm. Hollywood is the place where story is born. And for, I mean, honestly, the whole place um, is beautiful and varied, and there's so much texture and richness to LA. But it is also a place that exists. And doesn't exist at the same time. Yeah, it's an idea. RuPaul always says that like Hollywood is an idea. But actually, it's so funny that you... Okay, I've never thought of Amsterdam like that, to be quite honest. Because evidently, I think we come literally from the exact opposite. Like I come from a small rock in the Mediterranean, you know. Mm-hmm. So coming here, like, this was all a lot. But this practicality level that you just mentioned, actually... You're dead, like, dead on, like, uh, spot on, like, right? Because, actually, before I moved here, I was doing parties, I was performing, I was doing all these things, writing, but I never really thought of myself as that. I never thought of myself as, like, a writer. Or how do you basically decontextualize your own self from your emotion to actually see how other people see you and what you pretty much produce, which is a practical level, which also is a very capitalist level, but, hey, you know, it is what it is. 
So, please share with the people what you do, uh, because you do quite a lot and everything's super interesting. So, I'm going to give you the stage to explain before I get into it and ask you questions. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll do my best to sum it up. Um, well, let's start with the practical, since that's what we were just talking about. So, I am a Tantra teacher of non-dual tantra, classical Tantra. <laughs> <laughs> yes, queen. Um, and I am, we'll go super official here, I'm the Director of Human Resources or an organization called Synthesis Institute. Mm -hmm. But um, if we're going more meta, I am a Dakini through and through, which is a female embodiment of enlightenment and an emissary of the highest consciousness. Oh, yeah. So I'm here to just be that and live <laughs> and enjoy. Well, honestly, though, like, okay, so basically when we started talking, I thought of my episode instantly, and then I was like, oh, wait, maybe this is too close. But it's so interesting to kind of like, take because at the end of the day this is about personal experience you know what i'm saying to like add like a practical level let's say or a more like real life level to your work and what you actually do you know what i mean and basically like also what i experienced along with like so many other people pretty much how are you led to this specific practice like is there like a backstory there that you would like to share or what basically made you choose this path such a good question <sighs> like Everyone. I have my own journey through the underworld, if you will. And I would say that my story is most deeply connected to the body, which we all are here in a human body. Our vessel is this physical form that we've taken. Um, and so like many, my relationship to my body over the course of the many years I've been alive now um, is what really grounded me in this practice. So... Uh, I was always an athlete, mm -hmm. always super into my body, always feeling, you know, what is it like to experience aliveness in the body, breaking bones, you know, almost chopping fingers off, <laughs> like wild running around all the time. And then I went through a period where I was at complete war with my body. There was a part of me that didn't want to be here in this physical form. Mm. Um, I am someone who is extraordinarily sensitive, which... I think we all have the capacity to be. Um, but for a long time, the feeling and the experience in my body uh, through probably my, my, um, my teens into early adulthood was not good. Um, so long story short, I ended up uh, hurting myself continuously mm. over the course of 10 years, uh, battling addiction, sexual abuse, uh, bulimia, all sorts of things, which ended up being a, a total gift because what it did was brought me home to the possibilities and the potential of the human body mm -hmm. uh, to experience, not only in the physical form, but also what manifests as the mind. Um, so I basically, on a whim, was mm -hmm. invited to go to Peru at basically the lowest low point of my life like I hit rock bottom and I threw my hands up and said okay if there is a higher power please I need some help and mm -hmm. two weeks later I was on a plane to Peru oh, wow. um, and while I was in Peru I was working with a shaman for a week I had no idea what psychedelics were at this time mm -hmm. I was more into narcotics at that time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I went and I spent I spent a week in the sacred valley in Peru and um, I came home from that week uh, and I quit narcotics cold turkey after three years of like mm. serious addiction. And within six months, I moved on to L.A. with the mission of 
supporting the evolution of consciousness through uh, transformational media and transformational technology. Oh, yes. um, so I moved out to LA, uh, started a media company, basically. Mm -hmm. We were producing content for conscious brands. We were venturing into VR. All the while, I was on this journey of self-exploration, etc. Um, and I found Tantra. Uh, by the luck of the draw, I met a woman who needed some content created. She happens to be um, an extraordinary Tantra teacher. She ended up being my teacher, becoming my teacher for three years. Um, and I started to tap into the power of pleasure. We're sending my face. hand signals yeah. here. Right? <laughs> okay. I'm just scrunching my face. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, okay, good. <laughs> So, um, yes. So having had this stored experience with my body, um, I was really trying to make a home, mm -hmm. make a home for myself in my physical form. And after meeting this woman and encountering the world of Tantra, um, the way she was teaching was in the neo-tantric form. So one that is uh, centered around sexuality, pleasure, and pleasure really became a gateway for me. Um, not the notion of like climactic orgasmic bliss, which Yes, that is a part of it. But pleasure in the sense of the kind of experience that you can create for yourself mm -hmm. in any context, the experience mm -hmm. of joy in any context, and to give yourself that permission to experience that. And it was a really, really challenging endeavor. I was so programmed and conditioned, and I had signed up to all of these really um, – negative, nasty, heavy ways of being in my body, um, that pleasure became this huge teacher for me. Mm -hmm. And um, to kind of bring it full circle, I ended up having another experience with uh, ayahuasca um, when I was in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And after that, 10 years of bulimia just went oh, done. Wow. I woke up the next day and I, I never threw up again. So I had this very, very long... and interspersed there were all these extraordinarily mystical moments sort of the the, the kind of flavor that you suggested in the the, the story of how we met mm -hmm. um these mystical moments that brought me to this place to this point that was like oh this was exactly the tool that i needed fuck yes so fast forward um I've been studying Tantra for the last five years. Um, I'm also a Reiki practitioner, so I deal mostly in energetics. While the body is a physical body, it mm -hmm. is a body that's comprised of energy. Yes, and, exactly. And um, we can work with that energy to create our experience, essentially. Uh, and this mm -hmm. is my, my, my passion. What is the experience that we're having here? How can we mold that experience? Because reality is so malleable. Yes. Um, to create whatever we want. Fuck yes. I uh, couldn't agree more. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not pro this whole kind of like live, laugh, laugh, like bullshit. Mm -mm. Fuck no. It mm -mm. takes a lot of work and it's a lot of practice that you really need to put into it. It's not just like handed to you. You know what I mean? But um, I remember my shift. Well, shift. Um. I was I was like a lot heavier when I was like younger growing up and I really was not like the sporty type at all. I was only playing badminton, which like it, it like doesn't get gayer in terms of sports, you know. Uh, I was more of like the creative kind, let's say. But then um, when I did go in the army and it was like pretty intense, like psychologically and mentally for me for two years. Yeah, girl, it's mandatory in Cyprus, like... Uh-huh, they sent me to be a man and I came out a queen. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I need to go to that army. <laughs> so, like, when I came out of the army, basically, 
uh, I don't know. I started going to like the gym because I pretty much came out of the closet and I went through like a lot of like very, very dark period when I was in the army of depression and just like in a way a lot of fucked up shit. Like, so when I came out and I started like playing with my body a little bit, I first of all felt better. And, uh, but then also mentally I didn't feel that good. Cause like, I mean, it look at me like I really am not the gym type. You know what I mean? These kind of like repetitive like movements that there's no real like end goal somehow. Like I'm not I'm not aspiring to be this like meat mountain of a man. You know what I mean? So it just didn't really sit right. But then once I discovered yoga and basically belly dancing, I was like, oh my God, fuck yes. Like my body feels great. And spiritually, like, I feel grounded. Evidently, I mean, I've had, like, a long trajectory of psychedelic exploration and all that. But then once the embodied experience of that became a little bit more mm, disassociated, let's say, with uh, enjoyment on the level of partying, it became kind of like joy in the level of how do you choose to practice joy within your everyday life, suddenly it all made sense. And I was like, oh my God, fuck yes. This is exactly what it is. And um, you said something else that kind of like made me think of something that I went through too. So it's about basically rearranging your own narrative and kind of like your own practice in terms of like action that you do because reality is actually malleable, you know? One of my biggest problems that I've had in my life was pretty much learning how to spend time alone. I'm like an extremely social person. I thrive in social situations. Like I think you realized by now, I have no problem talking to like uh, strangers or people that I don't know or whatever. But like, um, I love myself. Uh, however, I've always had a problem of spending time on my own substantially. It was only through actions, let's say. It's kind of like the art of doing nothing, you know? Um, so then when I went through like these like really like, dark let's say experience um in the summer last summer actually when with a friend of mine that was pretty much like super violent and just like unnecessarily like abusive you know i um, I, I kind of like realized that the work that i will put in at the end of the day only has to do with me it has nothing to do with him you know what i mean the fact that he's an asshole should not dictate like how i will take this traumatic experience and shift it and change it through something that would help me eventually which in the long run actually i'm very like thankful of the fact that the work that i put in actually helped me be able to spend time alone constructively you know what i mean energetically speaking you know and that's the thing it's to be able to actually disrupt your own narrative and like make it into something new you know um, but before we get into disruption and that notion of energy, let's pick up the energy as well a little bit with the music and go into Colors by Avalon and then Bayaka by Burr. Oh, <laughs> 
Okay, so changed my mind. We're only going to listen to one song for now. So that was Colors by Avalon. So uh, we were talking about disruption, right? And you mentioned in your website, from what I gathered, uh, playful disruption, you say, a joyful, fun and distinctive interruption to the ordinary. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. Like, how is this disruption invoked in your practice? Is there a specific process that you follow or how does it, uh, you know, interplay with it? It actually weaves in perfectly with what we were talking about earlier. Uh, this notion of joyful embodiment in the the experience of life, no matter what's mm-hmm. happening. And this is the disruptive part because you did touch on something earlier that I find to be a very common uh, early stage on the journey, which is this notion that everything has to be like love and light and fun and pleasurable and this and that which is not actually the case. Um, and when, when I talk about uh, choosing pleasure or joy in a moment, it's actually the the, the transmutation of whatever is happening in that moment yes. into a state that is joyful or pleasurable. And let me tell you, it does not always feel <laughs> joyful or pleasurable. It's actually... <laughs> but this is what I love because it takes this this notion of multidimensionality. So like we think of pleasure or joy, um, for example, or anything really on a spectrum from a lot to a little or big to small or Mm -hmm. intense to subtle. Mm -hmm. But that spectrum actually extends out in all directions, in all facets of everything. So if you can imagine joy as like a smile, a bubbly feeling in your body, that is one small aspect of joy. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to create a joyful experience, say, if you fall off your bike in Amsterdam, right, how, how do you transmute that moment to be able to experience joy? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the notion of playful disruption. So how do you play with your reality? And this is really about finding perspective. So you asked about a process. Um, the process is really to find perspectives, to kind of bounce ideas off of the reality that you're living inside of to see what's going to create the most enjoyable for you or Mm -hmm. the most uh, pleasurable for you or the most peaceful for you. It depends on what you're really trying to achieve and what you feel you want to embody. Um, So in terms of the practice, uh, it's really about choice creation. And there are a million different ways that you can practice this from top down, uh, meaning more cognitive based and moving into the body, into mm-hmm. the emotions from a cognitive frame mm-hmm. or bottom up. And bottom up is really um, where the meat and potatoes of my work comes in. <laughs> I like to work in the body if you haven't figured that out <laughs> by now. <laughs> my art is done in the body. My work is done in the body. My experience is done in the body, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really work mostly from a bottom up perspective. Uh, to create choices so that might look like honestly practicing yoga or Mm -hmm. you know a single asana that's intended to create more space in a particular aspect of the body and what happens when you have space and i also like to play with all sorts of different frameworks Um, so the elemental frameworks is also one that's really really useful especially in the body because we're comprised of the elements Mm -hmm. um So working, for example, with a particular asana to create a little bit more space. And then you ask yourself, what do I want to fill that space with? Fuck yes. And so the other aspect of the work, so there's choice creation. And then there is a very practical element of the work, which is practicing. And you mentioned this earlier, like it takes a lot of work. It really Mm -hmm. 
It really does. It really, I was on my way over here on my bike. I was like, damn, it takes a lot of work to be joyful. <laughs> but it does. And that's okay. You yes. know, it's, that's, 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 that's why it's fruitful in the end. You know what I mean? Because you did put that much work to get where you are right now. Like I've been doing yoga for more than like three years now. And I go in and out of it. Like for me, it's a little bit more, it comes like, it's like a natural embodiment. There, for example, this period since January, I haven't done yoga. I'm too busy with my thesis, like reading books, all that shit, you know? But like when I tried to do it, like I was like, damn, I need to like put in the work. And I've been doing it for more than three years. Huh? So you kind of like need to pretty much disrupt exactly what you've been doing in this moment to go back to what you were doing before. And that's amazing. Also, you said like we're comprised of the elements and I'm like, fuck yes, we actually are, you know? Um, this disruption that you're talking about, made me think of uh, Alain Badiou that I mentioned as well in my introduction. And he basically says that the world beyond the counter as one, which is, let's say, the meter of comparison. So socially, it would be, let's say, uh, the cis white, cis gendered man. Energetically, I don't know what you want to call it, the universe, uh, whatever, you know what I mean? Shiva, whatever you believe in anyway. Um, and then he says that if it's the counter as one, that's, a, that's the meter of comparison, everything else is a multiplicity pretty much, that just basically surrounds the counter as one. And then these mul multiplicities, when they come together in an abnormal way, they create an event. It's a disruption of the ordinary run of affairs. And that just basically made me think of what you do, like, to the T, because that's actually what Tantra is and what yoga is and what this kind of, like, energetic awakening is, pretty much. You ground yourself in that moment with your multiplicities of meaning and of energy to be like, fuck yes, this right now is an event. This Shavasana that I'm putting myself into is an event, you know? And um, the other thing that you mentioned in your work that really like, sparked my interest is curiosity, which I think is a vital part. How does one, in your opinion, make themselves available to this aspect of life in everydayness? Is there like a way to incorporate it in a more practical way. I mean, for us, yeah, we have like similar tastes. So it's yoga, belly dancing, blah, blah, blah. But can I, let's elaborate a little bit on that. Like share your knowledge, darling. <laughs> <laughs> curiosity, is a, curiosity is a way of life or it really, it really can be. Um, and it is a central part to the tantric philosophy, not the word curiosity itself. You don't see that. Uh, mentioned so explicitly in the texts, but oftentimes they refer to becoming what's known as a clean mirror. So playful, something also that's been uh, mentioned a couple of times and is central to the work that I do. So what what is curiosity exactly? And you actually alluded to it just a second ago mm -hmm. when you were talking about <laughs> your your yoga experience, like having had three years of discipline now and going back to the beginning and then starting from the beginning. So curiosity is really starting from a fresh blank slate. And this is immensely difficult to do, especially if you've got some years under your belt. Yeah. You know, we become these pattern habituated creatures necessarily. So evolution has been brilliant to these bodies and how they're designed and how efficient they are. And now what we can create as a result of it. But if we're talking really practical, if you want to bring some more curiosity into your life, a simple moment of pause in your life to just look around. So, and this can be with anything. So pause in this moment and notice something. Notice something in your environment mm -hmm. and ask yourself, 
what is it? And then when you get the answer, what is it? Ask yourself, how do I know what that is? And really just allow yourself to get playful along the way with the questions. Is it red? What is red? Red is a color. Well, what is a color? Okay, great. So then you get really, really curious. So this is one way. Pause, slow down, and really engage. Ask. Uh, another way, and this this would be one of the bottom-up practices that I might actually work with someone on, is to create space in your neurobiology. So do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. If you flip your pancakes with your right hand, <laughs> damn it, girl, flip them with a the left. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Try something like that. Fuck yes. If you're someone who's oftentimes very reserved and you don't speak up often, try speaking in a, a louder octave when you speak. You know, try um, doing a cartwheel or putting on something that you wouldn't put on or put your clothes on backwards. Mm -hmm. Get playful try things out basically what this does and this this works with your neurochemistry um it creates more and new neuronal pathways in the brain this is actually exactly what the psychedelic experience does it kind Fuck of yes. opens up the 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 free highway of the brain that way you can be more creative this is something that artists often do as well um so by practicing this, doing things differently, you actually create more space in the brain for curiosity to naturally arise. Mm -hmm. So if you start doing things a little bit differently, then just watch. You might start looking at your coffee mug and start thinking, huh, this coffee mug, what's it all about? Like, <laughs> what else can go in there? What can it do? You know, and you start to uh -huh. get curious and, and reality then unfolds in this way. And the last thing that I, I think I would I would I would offer um, and this is this is more of a practical way and I know we're here talking about like social social dynamics and mm -hmm. um, social culture and so this one I feel is really practical um, and useful towards that towards that aim of creating hopefully a more compassionate and kind world mm -hmm. um, is to really be curious about the person that you're sitting across from yes. always like they may look a certain way they may sound a certain way they may occur in whatever way they do and you probably have a whole plethora of a, a preformed opinions on what those things mean in mm -hmm. your reality but really if you can extend to them a natural curiosity why is it that way and even turn it in on yourself why do i feel that way about a certain thing and be in an open dialogue about it don't be in a hurry for answers because truly there are none there are only more <laughs> questions so keep exactly. asking honestly though like um this whole idea of curiosity i don't know i really i mean i've always been a curious person because i'm just i feel naturally creative rather than like naturally practical um, but um, last instance I remember that I was kind of like, holy shit, was um, so in the inter and then we have this project coming up now and we're going to be working with costumes. And I just, first thing that when I heard costumes, I was like, yes, one leg, one shoulder, like shoulder pad, like bodysuit. And the person I'm collaborating with was like an apron. You know, that's what he thought about him. I'm like, huh, okay, cool. And literally that was the end of my idea. Then when we basically started collaborating with another person that will do the costumes, he had this idea of this, like, I don't know, kind of like an armadillo thing. And I was like, oh my God, I would literally never think of that. But that's exactly why 
each person brings out this, like, as you say, pattern, habituated sense of self that they learned. And then once they do that, you're like, holy shit, there's like so many like possibilities in the world. It's not just what I had in mind as the reality. I'll never forget the first time I tried psychedelics. It's like I was in this beach in Cyprus that I go to like very often, but I was kind of like, holy shit, it's like a completely new environment. You know what I mean? With the way I'm experiencing everything, the textures, the smells, how I am myself in this, basically, you know, and it's this multiplicity of experience. It's it's beautiful. And actually, um, the way you're saying it as well just makes it so much more reachable to do because it is that simple in its complexity, you know? It's literally just asking people how they are and getting into it and not just, like, taking things as they are, you know? There's this... um what's it called artistic practice called bricolage where basically you take pre-found objects and then you glue them together in a collage sort of way to create a new object and that's pretty much how if you ask me like life is an experience you know it's like a it's a it's a collage of things you know but um how how does this sequence let's say of energetic events okay let's take it one step further now um i believe in that I personally, like, yeah, before I met you, we had this conversation in the Bolt. Like, I believe in the evil eye. So I thought that it was kind of like a, this predetermined, let's say, sequence of bad things that just happened to me because I've been going, I don't know, whatever, through a lot of stuff the last period. And I was like, oh my God, it's the evil eye. And then I met you and I was like, no, it's not the evil eye. Like, there was a reason why all of these things happened because if I did get my first train, I wouldn't have met you and we wouldn't have been having this conversation right now. So, how can this sequence of energetic events and, let's say, unconscious embodiments inform your level of realization? Amazing question. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and such, a fun, and such a fun one, too, because... Um, so, to kind of leverage the artist uh, metaphor that we're going with here so as you arrive into an experience and you could argue that you are always arriving into experience that is like the nature of what we're doing here as you arrive into experience you have the sequence of events that led you into this experience and also want to take a pause to just say we're speaking in very linear terms and time is non-linear. Mm-hmm. So it's useful to think of the sequence of events as a coming together. So yes. if yes. you can imagine everything kind of coming together rather than a leading up to. Mm-hmm. So it's just useful to think about it in that way. So a coming together of events. So all of the sequence of things that leads into a single moment So for you, we'll use that example because it's a really, really good one of like the evil eye and like a a sequence of bad events. So there's like an accumulation of uncomfortable energy that's Mm -hmm. building, right? And the question of like, oh shit, is something bad coming? Did I do something bad? Is like my, my bad karma playing out? Is there something, you know, coming to get me? However, that manifests for you. All of those experiences coming together in a single moment represent what I like to call the raw fuel for what happens next or you can call it um you could call it your um you could also call it um like your paints like what are you going to paint with what paints did you bring Mm -hmm. i like to think of it as raw fuel because of the energetic component energy is fuel Um, and if you are open to being curious about 
the sensations in the body that are a result of the events that accumulated into a single moment of you being wherever you are right now, if you're open to being curious about those events and you're grounded in the sensation of the body, which this is the tricky part. This is where the the practice and the discipline comes in because you really need to build a level of physiological tolerance in your body for negative feelings. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think if everybody... Uh, were to work on this, we really would live in a more kind, compassionate mm-hmm. universe because we'd be able to tolerate the the things that feel crappy, you know, mm-hmm. when someone does something and we feel crappy as a result, right? We'd be able to tolerate that and then act from a, a, a place of something other than reaction. Yeah. Okay, so bringing it back, bringing it back to this example. So you have all of these negative events that are accumulating to a single moment. You're feeling a lot of really like nasty stuff in the body. You're feeling anxiety, you're feeling fear, you're feeling worry, you're feeling maybe a little bit of sick, uh, sickness. Okay, that represents the raw fuel. In that moment, you then have an opportunity to create something, mm-hmm. right? So when you tap into the power of your own creative force, anything that feels in the body, any energy that's in the body that's been accumulated from these events can be then used to create something else. And it really is about a choice. And this is why in my work, we, we do a lot of creating choices, like like looking at things from different perspectives. <gasps> I can be a very difficult person to talk to because if you want to just unload, I'll be like, well, what about looking at it from this way? What about this way? Uh-huh. Like, did you think about this? And and then suddenly it's like, oh, shit, you know, I just want to feel miserable. Like, yeah, stop yeah, trying yeah. to, you know, but but really it's about looking at things from different perspectives because it's about creating choice. So in a moment, when you have this raw fuel, you can channel that towards something. For example, let's say um, anger. Okay. Um, and anger can be good. It can be bad. You know, it can be a plethora of things. It's neither one. It's just anger. Um, but let's say that you want to get angry. And in spite of all of the negative things that have happened to you in this day, from this moment forward, you are going to be having a great fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh-huh. So there's the choice. Yes. But the choices grounded in the physical body, the sensations of the physical body, that raw fuel, that mm-hmm. raw energy, and you channel it towards through the vehicle of anger into what ultimately becomes joy or pleasure or Fuck having yes. a good time, etc. Uh-huh. And this is kind of how you work with reality. And it, the way I've, I've explained it, well, maybe the way I've explained it sounds easy, but it's really <laughs> about practicing a very simple tool set. Yes. A lot of the tools we've already talked about, mm-hmm. creating space in your body, in your consciousness, learning how to create choices, tapping into the sensations of your body. I think that's a really, really important one is like really, really getting to know your body. Um, but then it becomes that like, so to kind of circle it back to uh, the the evil eye that you were talking about. Um, so there are a wide spectrum of symbols that come from all sorts of different ideologies, theologies, philosophies, cultures, etc. Mm-hmm. And they're all imbued with a level of collective meaning, meaning because enough people buy in and believe mm-hmm. that this means something, right? So that thing actually does Take on the energy of that something and it shows up in your life as that something. So if the evil eye represents, let's just say evil, 
um, then it will show up in your reality mm -hmm. with evil. Mm -hmm. But where the choice creation comes in is if you can grow in tolerance for that, that feel, the feelings that come with your body when you're feeling like there's an evil force around you, you can actually face that evil force, open to embrace, using the vehicle of your body to transmute the raw fuel of those uncomfortable feelings and create something different. So maybe you want to meet evil with compassion. And this, by the way, does take practice. It's not something that you can just kind of like flip a switch on and do. And in fact, um, Tantra, when it was originally developed, um, you know, over 1500 years ago, it was developed as a practitioner's path to higher consciousness, but it was developed specifically for folks who are deep in their practice already. It's not like a just pick it up and start doing the practices and think you're going to get to the 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 um you know the realizations and things that can happen by the way it can um but what i'm really trying to emphasize here is that practice is the key mm -hmm. practice is the key like yes. really really over time committing practicing doing the the things you know will allow you to create these mm -hmm. kind of situations because you can't just take a bad situation and like make it something else overnight you can yeah, yeah, yeah. you know um but it, it, it can also, there are some dangers to that. So mm -hmm. that's why practice, experienced practitioners, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear that? I was literally my shoulder. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, so I was an angry kid growing up, right? I wasn't like sad. I was just angry, to be honest. It never came out, oh, I'm in the closet, I'm going to be depressed. Like, it wasn't, I mean, I was depressed, but in a different way. Like, I wasn't a Lana Del Rey, let's say, gay, you know? It was more of like a metalhead, rock, like, I just wanted to punch a wall, pretty much. And then I realized that pretty, it's what you're saying, pretty much. I don't know how I did, but it just popped up that, like, it's, for example... I had a very big problem with compliments. I was feeling awkward taking them. I was feeling awkward giving them. I just could not, you know? And then, like, um, I realized that there's actually, like, nothing more beautiful and more, let's say, I don't want to say courageous, but you feel just um, vulnerable, but in a good way. You know what I mean? Just literally sitting opposite someone telling them, you're beautiful, you know, and meaning something, you saying it, like, it, it's, it's fucking beautiful. Or even telling someone, I love you. It's the simple affirmations, let's say. And it's the positive affirmations that you give yourself by allowing yourself pretty much to affirm something positive, you know, or even something negative. It's just saying like, yep, it was shit, but blah, blah, blah. Well, put in the work one way or another, whatever is natural and organic to you. And then that will change into something else, you know. But before we get into a little bit deeper into our conversation, let's go to Rise by Willow. Hi. 
so that was Rise by Willow. Thank you for the music selection, by the way. Mm-hmm. I also have some that I'm going to put on later on. But let's continue our conversation. So uh, we talked about basically greater connectedness as one of the main attributes of your work. I personally believe that we tend to forget that people around us are actually as scared to meet us as we are, pretty much, you know. And I've gotten this a lot of times from people that are like, they say that I'm like not approachable, pretty much, or uh, like I'm not uh, relatable, I guess, uh, because I'm I'm pretty much like, I mean, I know my worth and I'm really not scared to let a bitch know what my worth is, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it also comes with like, a lot of years of self-hatred, crippling anxiety, work, insecurities, which I still have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know? But what I'm trying to say is that when you, for example, walk into a conversation, right, or walk into a situation, you tend to believe that what you're feeling is exclusively your own. When in reality, the other person experiences, uh, like, I don't know, fear as well, or insecurity, or all these things. However, this thing also, okay, is applied socially. What's your take on this, pretty much? And the reason I'm asking you this is because um, every time, for example, I would go in Azora, I would always question myself and feel insecure, like, holy shit, there's so many people around, a little bit of, like, agoraphobia, let's say, or something like that, you know? And then by the end of Azora, each, each fucking year, I swear to God, like, I would, like, be surprised with what my mind was able to do, which is pretty much form a bond with 50,000 people of this moment that we all experienced. So, yeah, what I'm trying to ask you is basically, what's your take on this socially, pretty much? Yeah, well, it's such an important topic. Right now, this notion of connection, I mean, mm. we can't say it enough, and I'm only going to give uh, coronavirus like a two-second plug because yeah. we've been talking <laughs> way too much about it. But we are all now so, um, you know, deeply disconnected. Yes. Um, which is somewhat of a symptom of a much larger theme. Um, Human beings are beautiful creations. Mm -hmm. Like, look at the beauty that we've been able to create. Mm -hmm. You know, art, Amsterdam, take two seconds to walk around Amsterdam and you'll be amazed by human ingenuity, truly. Mm -hmm. The thing is, we have fundamentally disconnected ourselves from what we are. And you may hear a lot about this um, in in a variety of different places but this notion of connectedness to nature Mm -hmm. and our disconnection from nature human beings evolved for fifteen thousand years living off the land living connected to the land Mm -hmm. our disconnection now i think is a byproduct of the disconnection we have from the land, from the mm. spirit of the land, from the weather. You yes. know, it's like a casu- <laughs> it's like a casual thing that we talk about for two seconds in the beginning of a conversation, but yeah. truly like the power of the, the weather is an unbelievable animated force. Oh yes. And uh. there, there's this notion as well of um, the animistic universe. Mm-hmm. So like truly being in connection with everything that surrounds us. Um, and I think this is fundamentally one of the the most important things that our society is craving right now. And you mentioned a little bit of discomfort or maybe even like avoidance or resistance of being connected with mm-hmm. one another right now. And um, oftentimes in my work, I resistance is like a place that you want to look. 
if you're trying to avoid something, that means something that you're trying to avoid has a message for you. It has something for you. Yes. You even articulated this in your story from Azora, where you went in feeling a little bit more within yourself mm -hmm. and like, you know, not super connected and then walking out with like these amazing connections and that being one of the coolest parts about the event for you, right? Mm -hmm. So there are these things in our world that we feel a bit of like resistance to. But the interesting thing is that resistance is also almost gravitational. Fuck so it's yes. like, yes, I don't know if I want to approach this person because I feel a little bit scared and insecure, uh -huh. but there's also something magnetic about this person, yes. right? So it's like, and, and oftentimes... Oftentimes in my work, what I find is that when you're specifically attracted to a person and that thing that you're attracted to in that person is also repellent, that's actually something that you have also inside of you. So if you love someone's charisma, their enthusiasm, but you're like put off the you're put off by it, mm -hmm. that you are actually an enthusiastic, charismatic person underneath it all and you are resisting that for some reason mm -hmm. so there's like a again we can i'm not a huge fan of polarity um it is a a, a concept that you will often find in, in neo tantra for example mm -hmm. but basically this notion of being attracted to someone or something but also feeling like no it's like a come here but putting the hand up yeah. that is an invitation that is an invitation to investigate and it doesn't mean you have to approach that person right but you can investigate it in yourself again getting curious mm -hmm. and from the larger social picture why is this important well because everyone has an opinion everyone has an experience and everyone's experience and everyone's opinion is valid mm -hmm. but the thing is the more disconnected we become the more fractal and fragmented we become yeah so you can imagine like um well, imagine like a factory that's building a car, okay? And every single part of that car is constructed by a different person. So there's one person responsible for constructing every single one of those parts. This is a very fragmented system. The guy who's responsible for, you know, um, creating the shock plugs is sick one day. Suddenly that car cannot function like what they're trying to put together can't function because that knowledge is so specialized and that system is so fragmented well what happens when we close ourselves to the experiences of other people mm -hmm. is we become fragmented as a society um, and what happens when we become fragmented is a lot of pain a lot of suffering dis-ease in the body mm -hmm. we can't work together i mean every single one of us has something beautiful and unique to offer and it's really about connecting with each other and inviting those unique gifts out that's going to help us um, moving forward. Fuck yes. Like, it's so interesting what you were talking about, Danny, mystic universe, uh, and kind of like this connection again with nature. When I first moved to Amsterdam, in the so I started off in a different master's than what I'm doing right now, but uh, the first text that we read was basically how to get in touch with nature in an urban environment. And I was reading, I was like, what the fuck are we reading? This is like the most stupid text ever. And then, like, I realized that when I was living here in Rithroth, I kind of like, whoa, I'm privileged as fuck because I was born and raised in Cyprus where the most beautiful beach is, like, literally five minutes away from the house and an actual mountain, you know what I mean, is, like, 25 minutes away from my house with, like, real trees and all that. So, to me... 
a connection with nature and with my body, it, it's, it, it was never really a conversation. It was just a given, you know? Uh, I had, like, so many, like, lemon trees and orange trees, like, in my childhood growing up. You know what I mean? In my yeah, backyard, in my grandma's backyard. I have all these, like, memories with, like, real nature that was not basically designed by Gemente or the municipality and all that. And then I realized how important this is, living here, because... Um, yeah, okay, I've lived around, but not for such a big chunk of my life. And I realize how, well, I've always known that the sun is obviously important, but how important it is. You know, I wake up here and I'm like, yup, again, this like death gray. But then I kind of like also go to appreciate that a little bit and find a different facet of myself within this, let's say, grayness or urbanism of what Amsterdam is, you know, because... Exactly as you said, each experience is valid and you have something to learn from that in order to add to this bigger thing we call society. However, repeating again like a thousand times on quintessentially queer, op all opinions are valid and emotions. Besides fucking hatred. Hatred is not an opinion. It's an action that makes you look like a fucking dick, pretty much. You know what I mean? So, since we're talking about basically hatred, let's talk a little bit about the preparation of what you do too. I realized, I mean, I realized that your legit thorough conversation, but the moment I was like, yes, bitch, you're coming on my podcast, was when we were talking about basically shamans and their appropriation and this kind of like, let's say like, whiteified way of looking at spirituality and you also mentioned Big Pharma at some point and how you give back to indigenous people and how they're also included in the process. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, what's your take? Because... Oh yeah, I should have maybe said this as a disclaimer from the beginning, but this is part of the conversation. It's not something that you should use as a disclaimer to being like, hey guys, disclaimer, we're legit, and then move on. No, it's a vital part of the conversation that should be included throughout the process rather than something that you just get out of the way. So yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. And the first thing that comes to mind is like to totally check myself. That's that's like the first thing that comes to mind in this conversation is to check myself, mm -hmm. right? So I'm legit, you're legit. We're all legit in our own way. Um, and there is a lot of posturing that occurs. Mm -hmm. And the first thought that comes up is to check myself. Like even at the beginning of this conversation, I proclaimed myself as a Dakini, mm -hmm. right? And that is, it would be likened to someone saying like, hey, I'm a shaman. Yeah, I've practice tantra for the last five years okay great you know like <laughs> woohoo super i'm a tantra teacher yeah okay woohoo super but really i'm a i'm a student so the thing like the heart of what is kind of coming up um in 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 this this conversation or this particular aspect of the conversation is the notion of humility mm -hmm. you can be who you are as big as beautiful as bright as you are and that, by the way, can also look like wearing gray and having like, you know, mon monotone voice and like mm -hmm. doing it can look like whatever it looks like, but having humility about it. Um, so, yeah, wanted to just check myself, call myself out a little bit there. I think that's a little healthy as well. Fuck yes, it's definitely necessary. And to turn around and then talk a little bit more um, about this appro appropriation of things. So and I will self-proclaim also you know i'm a very privileged person as well i've got like every privilege that you can imagine mm -hmm. um and i'm very grateful and uh, for that um this notion of 
borrowing or appropriating. So it is so important to acknowledge where things come from. Yes. There is a missing piece to a lot of the way that we engage in the world and that is context Mm -hmm. to contextualize knowledge that you have. Preach. So earlier in our discussion, I mentioned that Tantra was originally developed for the already advanced spiritual practitioner. It's not something you just pick up and practice. You can, mm-hmm. but it's it was developed for an advanced practitioner. That level of context, for example, is useful in the way that you engage with the actual wisdom. Okay, we can look at this. Let's take this to another uh, another domain. So psychedelics, something that are really bursting forth onto the scene right now, um, which is really great. Um, and what most people don't realize is that psychedelics are not something that people have just been doing since the 60s, right? That's when it gained popularity through the media. But they are sacred medicines that... Folks from indigenous communities have been practicing with for thousands of years that have entire cultural systems that are developed around these medicines, with these medicines, through these medicines. And that is extremely important when we think about how we practice if we practice with things like psychedelics, okay? The other component of this contextual element, so there's a knowledge component, meaning understanding where something comes from, the context that it comes from. But then there's also this notion of completing the circuit. So knowledge is something you receive, Mm -hmm. and then there's something that you give, Mm -hmm. right, in this relationship. Appropriation, essentially, is one manifestation of what is a very common practice in our society, our very capitalistic society, which is extraction, Mm -hmm. right? So we've been just like extracting the goods out of our planet, out of the people that have the, you know, best healing practices and modalities, Mm -hmm. this, that, and the other. Everybody's borrowing from everybody. Um, There's a couple issues with this. One is that resources are finite, right? Two is that when you extract from the system and you don't re-nourish, regenerate, give back to the system, you actually deplete that system's mm-hmm. energy, right? Okay. Not everyone is meant to practice with certain things or experience certain things. And we do live in a world <laughs> where like because of the media and the internet, we have access to all of it, but it's, it's not, not everyone is supposed to experience everything. Mm-hmm. Um, And that cultural piece or that contextual piece is really the the framework that would give you the space to be with something in a way that's really um, appropriate. So, for example, receiving permission Mm -hmm. or being invited in, etc. And it's worth mentioning that, say, for example, um, we'll just use psychedelics again, for example, you know, in an, in a community, uh, let's say South American community that's been working with uh, psilocybin mushrooms, for example, 
that lineage exists in someone's physiological DNA, their body, the way their culture has been constructed, the way they relate to it. It is a holistic system in the way it's been developed. To take a piece of that knowledge out and put it into practice somewhere else could potentially be harmful. And it often is. Mm-hmm. It is oftentimes knowledge misused. Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. So... This then kind of begets the question of, because I made a small mention in the very beginning that in addition to um, working uh, in the field of embodiment, uh, I also work in the field, the burgeoning field of psychedelic medicine. And it's a big, big question right now of like, how can you take these medicines that were intended for, you know, small community groups in a very particular way and bring them into a Western medicalized world? Okay. Mm -hmm. This is a very big question. Yeah. And it's important to hold that question, to humble yourself, to know and understand that you don't necessarily have the answers and to really go and invite all the voices that do have the answers, the knowledge holders, and to to use that system, the bigger, more capitalistic system that's developing to nourish the place from which these medicines come. Yes. So to create a sort of regenerative ecology in the way of like we receive with permission mm-hmm. and we give with grace. Yes, yes, that's beautiful. Exactly. There's um, There was this story in, well, it's not a story, I mean, it's reality, but uh, this really kind of like shook media last year in Cyprus. And this group of friends pretty much, I don't know, gathered some money and they flew this like white shaman in Cyprus, pretty much. And they did like a, an ayahuasca healing ceremony in their own apartment. And basically one of the girls had an overdose pretty much after. Because I don't know what, I mean, there was some psychosynthetic shit, I guess. I don't understand. She had a heart attack, pretty much, you know. But to me, it's kind of like this just says white saviorism and capitalism all over. Like, first of all. I don't know why you would think it's a good idea to have like a fucking shamanic ritual in your own apartment in a city like in Cyprus. You get what I'm saying? Instead of going to the root or to a retreat or to a center that is actually like, let's say, monitorized in a safe way, in an ethical way. Because that's the thing, like even with this podcast, like evidently right now we're not promoting this kind of like frivolous and just like aggressive and mandatory healing through psychedelics or anything of course not it's like an organic embodiment of what your body asks pretty much in order to be healed you know and then in respect to that also paying respect to the people that paved the way for you to go there huh because it's it, it didn't just happen on its own truffles were not like created by the dutch in amsterdam of course not you know what i mean neither did the ayahuasca just pop up in like the dark web or DMT, you know what I mean? (laughs) These things come from like a rich indigenous culture that have been using these things ritualistically and with a lot of like emphasis for hundreds of years. I remember when I was in Ozora, oh my God, okay, also like queen, well, king, I don't know how he identifies as whatever, but um, there was this guy that was doing this like super cool like necklaces and I bought one from them, la la la, but he had like a translator and we were talking anyway a little bit because I thought he was just like so fly. Like his style was like, yeah, you know what I mean? And this guy was like an actual shaman, like in Machu Picchu. And he told me basically that he's the only person like in Europe that is actually legally allowed to transfer 
ayahuasca with him or something like that. Like, and he's just like carry on, let's say, because it's his actual religion. And I was like, damn. And obviously, first response, I was like, oh my God, can you like give me some? Like, you know, but then when he explained a little bit further what he actually does, I was like, this guy, like there's a literally a rave going on outside and he's in his tent or caravan or whatever, just basically practicing his own religion through ayahuasca. Because to him, it means something more rather than just basically sitting around with your bros while you're smoking joints, talking about how you saw this creature that blah, blah, blah. It's literally a healing device that pretty much carries within it like ancient secrets and power of civilization for like thousands of years, pretty much, you know? And that's exactly why I was so like um, positively responding to what you were saying because you were talking about it in that way. It wasn't just this kind of like object that you were trying to sell to me because I, I really don't fuck with that. You know, I really don't do well, for example, in yoga classes either. If anybody tries to suggest a healing something for you or push it on you, run the opposite direction. Exactly, exactly that, you know. Um, but let's talk about this briefly as well. You mentioned sex as well in your practice, which, by the way, like all up for that. I've, I've been cured so many times through just like good sex. And the thing is that I feel that there's like different pillars between straight, uh, heterosexual, I mean, and queer lives in terms of sex and how it is experienced pretty much. Because evidently there's like universal experiences, like you lose, losing your virginity, first time you have like, I don't know, the best sex of your life, blah, 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 blah. But how does this interplay with your practice? And do you think that there are actually like differences within, I don't know, if you want to call it pillars, you want to call it fields? Because also, okay, I identify as queer sexually as well, but to me it's a political thing and a social thing, more than just like, oh yeah, I like men, you know? So yeah, I just wanted your take on this before we slowly wrap up. Yeah, great question. And it's like the perfect thing to end on because I find, you asked about my practice, um, sex is the thing that binds everything. We mm -hmm. live in an erotic universe. I, I think, as I mentioned to you the very first time we met, the world is constantly birthing itself. It's like the universe is creating. It's such an yes. It's such an erotic experience to have everything be birthed into reality in a moment. But the question you asked was really about: Do you feel that there are different fields based on how you identify? Yeah, if yeah. you want to put it like that, sure. But the thing is that, like, is there differences in the way that sex interplays with your own embodiment, pretty much? Yes. Whatever that is. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, sex is by far one of the most misunderstood, most projected upon, um, most shameful, most blah 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 blah. Put put whatever label you want in it. It's sex is something that people just. They really don't get often beyond, mm -hmm. um, you know, for pleasure, climactic um, between one person. Like it's a very limited subset of what we believe sex and sexuality can be. Um, and how so how does it integrate with my embodiment practice? Well, if you take the stance of an erotic universe, meaning one that is always making love with you, basically, one that is always co-creating, one that is always birthing itself into the moment. Life becomes a very sensual experience. Mm -hmm. And the sensual experience is part of this reprogramming of the senses. We live inside of a society that's very 
desensitized right now and part of this coming back to connection with one another coming back to the wisdom of our bodies to curiosity to openness is this notion of resensitizing so when the world that you live in becomes a sensual erotic place you become more sensitized in your in your body your body is basically a, a vehicle uh, an instrument that you can play this is how we co-create the the reality this is how the malleable reality kind of comes down to it um, sex is an incredible vehicle sex itself like the act of having sex which by the way can be um, with a partner, without a partner, um, with many partners, penetrative, not a energetic, breath induced, yes. like to uh, similar to kind of how we started with expanding your concept of what you think joy is, mm -hmm. expand your concept about what you think sex is, and exactly. and this is why um, you you did mention the notion of of um, identifying as queer and mm -hmm. and how that kind of plays a factor. Well, for me queerness and this is for me for me queerness is an embrace of reality yes it is a willing co-creation with all the potentialities and a celebratory realization of them yes and when you make love in that way when you have sex in that way when you fuck in that way yes! <laughs> it changes your whole worldview. fuck yes exactly very that could not have said it better. You had it here, folks. Fuck in a queer way. <laughs> okay, so wrapping up, do you have any new projects coming up that you would like to share? And if so, also share like your social media platforms or websites or whatever you would like people to access your work through. Definitely. I've been on a bit of a hiatus for um, from social media, mm -hmm. but you are welcome to join in the fun. There are some projects coming in the pipeline. Um, as a creative, I feel sometimes shy to talk about things before they're ready. Yes, just, yeah, where people can access yes. it when it's time to. Yes, absolutely. Okay, do follow me on Instagram. It's uh, I am Arendelle. A-R-I-N-D-E-L-L. -L. I am Arendelle. That's the place where you will find all of the things as they begin to come. That's also where I feature um, a lot of my my poetry it used to be very private um but yeah join in there also keep tabs on synthesis institute and synthesis retreat uh dot com for both if you're interested in the psychedelic psychedelic path yeah it's amazing you can follow me as always under gravity underscore grave on instagram and you can follow quintessentially queer on facebook and wordpress actually and access them podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thank you so much, darling, for coming on my podcast. This was a lovely conversation. Such a pleasure. Yes, and lovely to meet you and actually be able to sit down and have a proper chat. <laughs> so now, uh, we will close off with Lay Down Your Blade by Joey Wellboy. Thank you again so much for coming. Such a pleasure.